Well, today we're continuing on in our series, The Kingdom Way. And today we'll be looking at the last two Beatitudes that's found in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there now to Matthew chapter 5. Open up to whatever device or, or, or smartphone, smart device you have. Open up to Matthew 5. And if you don't have a Bible here and you need one, just go ahead and raise your hand. Keep your hand up and someone will come around and get a Bible to you. And as you're finding your place in Matthew 5, let me, let me just say this sort of as a, as a launching point for today's message. You know, as we've been looking at the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes of Jesus, it may seem as though, may, maybe you've sensed this at some point throughout the course of the last several weeks, it may seem as though Jesus is painting this ridiculously ideal picture of what a Christian is supposed to look like. Right? I, I don't know if you've ever sensed that, you know, just kind of going through the Beatitudes. It, it seems as though Jesus is, is painting for this, this unachievable, ridiculously ideal picture of what a Christian is supposed to look like. And, and I mean, some of us, you know, most of us, we have an ideal picture in our minds when it comes to, you know, the kind of girl we want to marry or the kind of guy we want to marry, right? Like, ladies, you say he's got to be at least six feet tall, you know, like I, all my six feet and under brothers holler at your boy, right? Like five foot, five foot, eight and a half, all right? Don't try to steal that half from me. Five foot, eight and a half. I don't know what the six feet, you know, but, but we, you know, ladies, you say he's got to, you know, he's got to have a nice tan. I'm not about that pasty white life, you know, like I just got to have a nice tan, you know, he's got, I ain't going to complain about rock hard abs, I'm just saying, I'm not vain, but I'm not going to complain about a nice body either, like don't lie, I'm, no one's judging here, right, you, you know you have your list, guys, you have your list too, I'm not going to go into that list, but you got that list, I don't want to get in trouble here, you got that list, right, now listen, we have this ideal picture, and it seems as though Jesus is painting for us this ideal picture, this picture, perfect picture of, of what a Christian is supposed to be, what a Christian is supposed to look like. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but when I look at the Beatitudes, all the qualities that Jesus listed for us, and I put my life up against that grid, I can't help but feel like a failure. I can't help but feel like, man, I fall so far short of this list that Jesus is putting out before us. I don't know if you're like me and maybe you're holier than I am, but, but when I look at that list and I look at my life, I say, I'm not quite there, Jesus. Now, here's the point of the whole point of the Beatitudes. First of all, let me just say, you may already know this. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian right? There, there's, I mean, Jesus is the embodiment of perfect perfection, but aside from Jesus, on this side of heaven, on this side of the cross, we are all striving towards growth and, and, and becoming like Jesus, and so there is no such thing as a perfect Christian. Now, with that said, with that said, this is important that we get this. When it comes to the Beatitudes, Jesus actually calls us to all eight of these things, all of them. I want you to know that when he shares, when he gives these beatitudes to his listeners, he's not giving to his listeners the freedom and the liberty to sort of pick and choose, kind of like in a buffet line, what you want to adopt in your life and what you want to discard. He doesn't come to you and say, you know what? Okay, I get, you know, poor in spirit is hard. Don't worry about that. Just hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, he doesn't give us the freedom to say, you know what, Jesus, I'm not down with the whole mourning thing. You know, grieving, you know, that's just, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, but, but meekness, I'll, yeah, I, that, that sounds cool. Like, I, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll roll with that. You know, like meekness is, 
That's fine. Jesus does not give us the freedom to pick and choose. In fact, he calls us to all eight of these things, which furthermore might fuel our self-doubt that we can actually become these types of people. All eight, like if you were just asking me to be pure in heart, that's cool. But now you're asking me to be pure in heart, poor in spirit, this and that. All eight of these things, which leads me to my next point. While Jesus calls us to all eight of these Beatitudes, you need to know that Jesus' main concern is not that we arrive at this place of perfect performance. Jesus does not have a checklist of all eight qualities and all eight Beatitudes, and he says, poor in spirit, yeah, you look poor, yeah, enough, that's good enough. You know, meekness, I don't know. You, you, you know, you weren't so meek when you were talking to that, you know, your roommate. You were a little proud. You were like, so I'm going to leave that one. He's not going through a checklist, and he's not looking for an eight out of eight performance. Rather, what he's looking for, he wants to know, are we moving towards this direction? Are we growing in the likeness of Christ? He's not looking for holy perfection. What he's looking at is our life direction. Are we moving in this direction? Are we growing in this way and becoming like Jesus, conforming daily to his image? And church, I hope, I hope here at ACF, we might be able to say, you know what? I don't always get it perfectly. And sometimes I don't always get it right. But I do know that I am at least moving in the right direction. My feet are planted and pointed in the right direction. And that's what these Beatitudes are about. And so for the very last time, I want to read what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, we're going to start from verse 3 at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, at the start of the Beatitudes, and then we'll carry through to verse 12. Also, we'll put the text up here on the screen, and uh, we'll read along here. Matthew chapter 5, pick me up at verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what it says. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And here we come to our final two Beatitudes for the day. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God or children of God, depending on what translation you have. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this next part is sort of an add-on to the last beatitude, and so we'll, we'll look at these last two verses real quickly. It's, Jesus goes on, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, for our final two beatitudes, Jesus addresses the peacemakers and the persecuted the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Now, I'm going to spend most of our time today talking about the former, the first, the peacemakers. So let's look at the peacemakers. I want you to notice something here right off the bat. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't call us to keep the peace. He doesn't call us to keep the peace. Now, many of you know I'm a father of two boys, right? Nine and, and six, soon to be seven. And in my house, I am always trying to keep the peace between them. You know, I'm always trying to keep the peace. You know, my brother stole my Lego piece. My brother stole my, yeah, this and that. And I'm, I'm, stop, get 
keep the peace, keep, just keep the peace. And, and as a husband, right, I'm trying to keep the peace in my marriage. I don't want to get my wife angry. And so I try to keep the peace. And there are a lot of things that I do that gets my wife angry. I'm not going to bear it all this morning, but there's a lot there. And so I got to learn to keep the peace. As the pastor of ACF of this church, I'm always looking to keep the peace amongst roommates and housemates. And I can't tell you how many roommate conflicts we, Nicole and I have sat through and, and we're trying to keep the peace, just keep the peace. But friends, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't call us to keep the peace. He calls us to make peace. He calls us to make peace. You see, there's a difference between keeping the peace and making peace. When you're keeping the peace, all you're doing is simply maintaining the peace that was already in place. Keep the peace. There's peace here. I don't want it to get disrupted. And so our job, we just walk around at like, like a bunch of peacekeepers, holding everyone at bay and holding everyone at the corners of, of their rings and saying, keep the peace, keep the peace. But when you make peace, when you're making peace, you are now shifting the environment. You are changing the atmosphere by bringing peace into a place where there was no peace to begin with. That is a far more difficult task, if you've ever experienced that. Trying to bring peace in a place where there was no peace to begin with. You see, one is passive and the other is far more active. Friends, you need to see this. Jesus calls us to be active peacemakers. Not passive peacekeepers, but active peacemakers. And so the question is, how do we make peace? A bunch of us know how to keep peace. Avoid conflict and avoid fighting and arguments, avoid dissension. When a lot of us know how to keep the peace, but how do we make peace? How do we go about peacemaking? In other words, what does a peacemaker actually do and what do they look like? Well, to describe the life of a peacemaker, I want to contrast a peacemaker with what I would identify as the opposite of a peacemaker. And, and you know, logically so, many of us would think a peacebreaker, right? Yes, absolutely, a peacebreaker. You could think of it in that light. But for the sake of our time today, we're going to call the opposite of a peacemaker a potster. A potster, someone who likes to stir the pot. There are some of, some of us in this room that like to stir the pot just for no reason. We just like to stir it up. You like to stir the pot. We're going to call you the pot stirrers. And now all joking aside, let me just say this. If your heart is struck, if your conscience is stricken in these next few moments, as I'm, as I'm unfolding some of these concepts and you say, ah, I feel like, I feel like the preacher's talking about me and I don't like how he's talking about me. I feel uncomfortable. I don't like where he's going with this. Can I ask you, first of all, don't leave, okay? Because I will call you out, all right? Hey, just come back, come back here, sit down. Yeah. I, but listen, don't leave. Stay in that place of discomfort. Stay in that place of tension. And here's what I want you to do. We intentionally started the sermon time the way we did. Spirit breakout. Lord, break my walls down. Because what you're feeling in that moment is not a bad sermon. I don't preach bad sermons. It's just, it's, you know, it's just, right? Like, amen, church. Amen. Give me an amen, right? No, listen, what you're feeling is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore that. Do some business with the Lord before you leave this place. And I think that there's some things that the Lord wants to impart and speak to on uh, us here today on this very subject. 
And so I want to jump into it. Let's compare and contrast the peacemaker versus the pot stirrer. I got five different kind of categories that I want to just really quickly run through here. And we'll start with number one. Peacemakers are drama free, whereas pot stirrers are drama starters. Peacemakers are drama-free people, whereas potsters are drama starters. Now, just by, by just question, how many of you like drama? Now, I'm not talking about the TV and movie genre. I'm talking about like drama in your life. How many of you like drama in your life? Okay, I didn't think so. No, I didn't see a single hand go up. I absolutely hate drama. I'm not going to lie. Some of you come to me with drama. I'm like, oh, Jesus, help me. I, just, I, I can't help. I can't help but hate drama. There's, I'm not sure there's anything in this world that I hate more than unnecessary drama. Now, do you ever notice those people? <laughs> Wherever they go, it seems like drama follows them. You know what I'm talking about? Like you, you, just, you, you watch them and like, they're always in the middle of some kind of drama. And you're like, I don't get it. Why is it, why, why are they always in, in some kind of conflict or always in some kind of deep waters and drama, this drama, that? Friends, I want to let you in on a little secret this morning. Drama often follows those who start drama. Did you know that? Drama often follows those who start drama. Now, quickly, real quickly, what do I mean by drama? Potsters or, or people who, who start drama have a way of causing trouble wherever they go. You know, they tend to create unnecessary tension in, in, in a room, in a setting, wherever they step into. Now, you can tell who a potster is in the room because when they leave, the room is left feeling yucky. You know what I'm talking about? Like, when a potster leaves the room, you know, you know when, when a potster has left the room because the room feels like, ugh. This is like a dark cloud over this room. There's just an air of negativity in this room. What is this? That's the effect of a potster. And the ironic thing is, when a potster is stirring the pot, it often seems innocent. And it often seems harmless. They're just stirring the pot. Don't mind it. I'm minding my own business. Just stirring the pot. But the trouble really comes after they've stirred the pots. The trouble comes when they leave. It comes in the aftermath. And so after they've innocently lied, after they've innocently gossiped, after they've innocently slandered, after they've innocently spoke out of turn, after they've innocently said, uh, spoke a, 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 a false truth about someone else, after they've innocently sinned against someone else, trouble always follows. You see, potsters are drama starters. You want to stay away from these people. Love them, but stay away from them. <laughs> On the other hand, peacemakers are drama-free people. They're drama-free. Now, listen, I'm not saying peacemakers have no problems. They have no hardships. They have no difficulties in their life. I'm not saying that. But peacemakers tend to stay away from unnecessary drama. And so let me ask you a question. Do you often find yourself in the middle of drama in your life? Just be honest with yourself. Do you find yourself in the middle of drama? If so, it may be worthwhile asking a follow-up question. Could I be the one starting the drama? Now, if you have a hard time answering that question, if you feel like you can't accurately assess that for yourself, find a few close friends around you and ask them, hey, does it seem like I'm always caught in the middle of drama? And if so, from your perspective, friend, does it look like I'm the one starting, the, just stirring the pot? 
Now, that's going to take some boldness on your part. And friend, on the other, uh, other side of that conversation, please do your friend a favor and be honest. Don't say, no, 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 it's not you. It's, it's, it's not you. Like, don't. No, if that person is the one starting the drama, please do the body of Christ a favor and speak the truth. You're starting trouble, man. You're, you are, you are, you are stirring the pot unnecessarily. You are causing problems here. Peacemakers are drama-free, whereas potsters are often drama starters. Number two, peacemakers use careful speech, whereas potsters seem to have careless tongues. You see, this is part of what causes drama in people's lives. You ever notice how potsters have a tendency to just run their mouths? You know, they just, they just can't shut up about anything. They just keep running their mouths, running their mouths. It's like they have no control over what they say about whomever they're talking about. They're careless with their words. And friends, let me tell you, when you're that careless with your words, you are bound to bring destruction with your words. Just going to put it out there. When you're that thoughtless and careless with what you say out of your lips and with your tongue, you are bound to bring destruction with your words. Proverbs 29 says, do you see a man who is hasty or, or, or careless or thoughtless in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. This guy is doomed. This guy is bound to bring destruction on his life and around him. The Bible speaks strongly against those with careless tongues. On the other hand, peacemakers are careful. They are prudent. They are judicious with their words because... They recognize the power of their words and they use their words to bring life, to bring hope, to bring encouragement. Proverbs 13 puts it this way, whoever guards his mouth, whoever is careful with their speech, preserves his life. On the contrary, he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Again, people who are careless with their words often bring destruction with their words. Peacemakers use careful speech. Whereas potsters seem to have careless tongues. And so you need to ask yourself, do I often find myself running my mouth about other people? And this one, I'm pretty sure you can accurately assess for yourself. You know when you're talking out of turn. You usually know when you're speaking out of turn about someone else. You know when you're running your mouth and you shouldn't be. Can we, can we just be honest with that, right? Like you don't need a preacher to tell you, hey, stop running your mouth. You know when you need, need to you know when you need to shut up. And so ask yourself, hey, am I am I running my mouth more than I need to be? And am I using my words to bring life or death? Proverbs also says that the power of the tongue holds life and death. It's up to you, it's up to us how we use our words. Are you careful with your speech or do you have a careless tongue? Number three, peacemakers have a high concern for others, whereas posters hold their self-interest as priority. A high concern for others as compared to self-interest as priority. You see, the reason why posters use their words so carelessly to tear down others and the reason why posters often start drama where they go is because they want to feel important. They want to feel significant, even if that's at the expense of someone else. Pots are people who stir the pot often hold themselves in high regard as top priority. Their actions are often self-centered. They're often looking out for their self-interest and for themselves. Listen, people who genuinely have a high concern for people 
generally don't talk about others in a negative light. Why? Because they value people. They value people. Listen, people who have a high concern for others don't need to start drama wherever they go. Why? Because they value people. People, peacemakers tend to take the words of Scripture seriously when it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. Not less significant, but more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, he's saying, people of God, would you please learn to value people? Value people. As a church, as a people, we value all kinds of things. But here, right here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is saying, people, the church of God, learn to value people. You see, peacemakers have a high concern for others, which makes their primary focus in life to build, to edify, to encourage the people around them. Why? Because they value people. They value people. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you someone who truly values people? Do you value people? Seriously. Not in concept, not in theory, not like, yeah, all people matter. People are important. But do you, deep down inside on a soul level, do you truly value the people around you? Do you value the people in this room? Do you value the people on this campus? Do you value them as people? Do you value them? Do you hold people in high regard or do you generally look down on them? This might be a good indication whether you're a peacemaker or a pot stirrer. Number four, peacemakers tend to have a unifying spirit, whereas pot stirrers bring a divisive spirit. This is when I was going through my message, the Holy Spirit said, This is a word for the church. I don't know if it's just ACF. I don't know if it's for the, 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 the American church as a whole. I don't know if it's talking about the global church, but I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, this is a word for the church. Peacemakers tend to bring a unifying spirit, whereas potsters bring a divisive spirit. Have you ever watched drama unfold in a group of friends? Right, like this drama unfolds and it just tears that group apart. It tears that group to shreds. Maybe you were part of a group like that. Maybe you were part of a group and now you're not part of that group. Maybe, maybe you've seen this, right? Where someone runs their mouth, they speak out of turn and they say something about someone else. And the next thing you know, rumors are spreading like wildfire. They're spreading and then it, that rumor goes from one group text to another group text and, and this group knows about this and, and all these things get stirred up. And before you know it, you don't even want to be in the same room, let alone the same group text. You don't want to be in the same room as those people. You don't want to be in the same room as that. When you see that person walking down on Allen Street, you make sure you go down Pew Street. You know, you don't, you don't want to cross paths with them. You can't stand the sight of them. You see this drama unfolding and tearing apart a group of friends. You see it all the time. And friends, I'm not even talking about outside the church. I'm not talking about with non-believers, people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about right here inside the church family, inside the body of Christ. This is happening right underneath our nose, and it is happening far too often. Do you know how much that grieves the heart of God? Do you feel that weight of the grief of the Father heart of God 
when this happens over and over and over again within his church family. One of the most profound prayers of Jesus is found in John chapter 17. You don't need to turn there now. In fact, what makes this prayer so profound is that, you know, when you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus going off to pray a lot, right? Oftentimes you read, and then Jesus went off to a solitary place to pray, and then Jesus went off to this place to pray. Jesus went off to pray a lot, okay? He went off to pray a lot. But rarely do we ever get to hear his prayers. We know that Jesus prayed, but we don't ever really get to hear what he prayed. But in John chapter 17, we get a unique glimpse into Jesus' prayer life. Furthermore, what makes this prayer unique is that the entire chapter, all of John chapter 17 is dedicated to this single prayer. And guess what he's praying for? He's praying for you and for me. He's praying for the church. Isn't that like crazy that like Jesus prayed for you, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you received prayer from the king of kings. Like, how amazing is that? Jesus prayed for you. Now, listen to what he says for just this portion of the prayer. He prays in John chapter 17 that they may all be one. Who's, who's they? It's you and me. It's the church. It's the followers of Jesus. It's the body of Christ. He says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on and he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Two things I want to quickly point out here. Four times, four stinking times, Jesus prays that we may be one, that we might be united. But he's not just talking about any ordinary kind of unity. He's not just talking about any kind of one. The kind of one that Jesus is talking about is the one that is represented in the oneness of the Holy Trinity. Jesus says to the Father, I want the church. He's talking about you and me, friends. He's talking about us. I want the church to be one, just like you and I are one. That is a powerful kind of unity. This kind of unity is the kind of unity that goes beyond just superficial commonalities. Hey, you're Asian. I'm Asian. Cool. Let's work together, right? Like, hey, you're from New York. I'm from New York. That's awesome. By the way, I have a soft place in my heart for New Yorkers. And so just I, I tend to unite a little bit easier with New Yorkers. And so, but, but it goes beyond that. Hey, you, you like Parks and Rec? I like Parks and Rec. Cool, man. We, let's roll together, right? Like, you, you tell me you like cookies and cream? That's amazing. I like cookies and cream. Now let's unite. Jesus is not talking about a superficial kind of commonality, this kind of unity. He's talking about a kind of unity that comes together in spite of our differences, in spite of our differing opinions about life, about politics, about religion, about every, everything under the sun. He's talking about unity that goes beyond our different preferences. It's the kind of unity that no drama can break, no gossip can tear down. It's a bond that is supernatural in nature because it is bound together by the person of Jesus. That's the kind of unity we're talking about here. Jesus says, that's the kind of unity I want represented within my church. The second thing I want to quickly point out about this John chapter 17 passage is this. Jesus says, I want them to be one so that, so that, you know what that means? For the purpose of, 
I said this, and here's why I said this. I want them to be one so that the world may know that you sent me. In fact, he says that same line twice in just those few verses. Friends, do you know that the unity that we possess and express is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools we have in our toolbox? You know, there are a lot of good tools, you know, but, but for now, I'm just saying, forget the, the, the bridge analogy, forget, you know, the, the, the highway to you know, praying the sinner's prayer, you know, for the, the, the four spiritual laws and every tool and mechanism that you have, 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 have used to bring people to Christ and evangelize. I'm not saying those are bad tools. I'm just saying they can't take precedence over the unity of the body of Christ. The unity within our church family is our single greatest, most powerful evangelistic tool that we have in our toolbox. Because when people come, when people come and they see, the world sees this kind of supernatural unity that binds us together, I promise you, I promise you, the world will be drawn to the heart of the Father. They will be. I can't tell you how many times, maybe, maybe this is even your story, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you want to know how I came to faith? You want to know how I became a Christian? I went to a church. I didn't believe everything that the church said, but you know what? I saw people loving each other in ways that I have never seen before. I have people, I've seen people coming together and not agreeing on everything, but being bound together by something that, that seemed beyond just, just kind of the superficial and the, and, and the surface. I saw people loving and encouraging each other and building each other up in ways that I don't see anywhere else on this planet, anywhere else in my life. That's how I became a Christian, because I knew that there was something real about this community. The power of unity is our greatest evangelistic tool. You see, peacemakers bring this kind of unifying spirit wherever they go. But potsters divide and break this bond of unity. And so let me ask you a question. Simple question. Are you a unifying person or a divisive person? Do you bring unity to places you go? Are, are you a unifying agent? Or are you an agent that divides, that breaks apart? You got to do some soul searching on that because peacemakers have unifying spirits, whereas potsters have a divisive spirit. Now, if your feathers aren't ruffled yet just a little bit, it's about to. Number five, peacemakers represent the father whereas potsters represent the enemy. Every time you stir the pot, you are doing the work of the devil. Just hear me before you throw tomatoes up at the stage, before you throw stones, just hear me out. Peacemakers represent the Father, and obviously I'm talking about the Heavenly Father, whereas potsters represent the enemy, the enemy of our soul. I'm talking about the devil. I want you to know this, notice this particular beatitude. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, notice the promise here, for they shall be called sons of God or children of God. You know, growing up as a little boy, I was constantly told that I looked like my mother. I looked like my mom, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I, it used to bother me. I used to hate it. I used to hate it. I'm like, in my little boy mind, I'm like thinking to myself, I'm a boy. How can I look like my mom? You know, like how, I don't get it, right? Like I, I thought it was, I thought it was an insult. And furthermore, people would say, no, 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 no. It, it, it's a good thing. We think your mom is pretty. 
I'm like, that's not helping. I don't want to be pretty. I want to be handsome. I want to be rugged. I want to be a boy. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a pretty boy. You know, I don't, I don't want to be pretty, right? And then as I got older, I, I kind of grew out of that and realized, actually, my mom is beautiful. Like, I, I take that as a compliment. Call me, you know, say I look like my mother. mother. But, and then I, I got, as I got older, people started saying that I look like my father. And, 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 and they said things like, you know, Dan, your mannerisms, the way you kind of walk, the way you carry yourself, even the way you eat, you know, like my, my dad, you know, I, my wife points this out all the time. In fact, she just takes pictures uh, whenever I do this and shows, see, this is your father. You know, when we eat at the table, I keep, I keep my left arm like this and my hand like this, and I'm just eating like this. And he's, he's just like, what are you doing with your left hand? I'm like, I don't know. This, I, I feel like I saw my dad doing that. I, just, I grew up looking at this, right? And I saw, the, and so, you know, people say, you look a lot like your, your dad. You see, he, here's my point, church. I'm going to look a lot like my mother, and I'm going to do a lot, a lot of things like my dad. You want to know why? Because I'm their child. I'm their child. It is as simple as that. And as children of God, our lives are to look a lot like our heavenly father. And here in this beatitude, Jesus gives us a clue into God's character. He says, hey, if you're not so sure, if you're not so sure what my father in heaven is like, let me put it this way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. In other words, when you are a peacemaker, you are actually reflecting the very nature of your father in heaven. The Bible tells us that God is a God of peace and we look most like our Father in heaven when we make peace on earth. On the contrary, the enemy of our soul loves to create unnecessary drama that gets our eyes off of Jesus. That's, that's what drama does in our lives. More than anything, more than you know, just, just breaking apart relationships and causing discomfort and anxiety in people's lives, Drama gets our eyes off of Jesus. That's what that does. The enemy loves to create and stir up drama to get our eyes off of Jesus. He loves, the enemy of our soul loves to run his mouth and whisper all kinds of lies and words of deception into the deep caverns of our soul. I want you to know, you need to know this, the enemy of your soul cares absolutely nothing about you. He doesn't. He cares nothing about you. He is, he is not out for your good and out for your benefit. He cares nothing about you. He holds no one in high regard except himself. In fact, that is the very thing that got, kicked, that, that got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. He holds no one in high regard except himself. He thrives in disunity. You want to see someone with a divisive spirit look in to the life of the enemy, look into the heart of the enemy. There is nothing but division in the heart of the enemy. He is divisive in everything that he does. In short, the enemy loves to stir the pot. He loves to stir the pot. Now, I know we started this time off by sort of laughing and saying, ha you know, like pot stirs. It's fun when we stir the pot. It's funny when we stir the pot. No, no, it, it, it's actually really not. It's not funny at all. Because what you're doing is breeding the work of the enemy within the body of Christ. Now, I don't know who this word is for. I'm confident it's for somebody, maybe for a few of us in this room. I pray that you would hear with open hearts and open ears 
what the Spirit of God might be saying to you. Are you a peacemaker? Forget peacekeeper. We already dealt with that. Are you a peacemaker or are you a potster? Just kind of run your life through this grid of these five things and ask yourself, do do I represent the left column or do I represent the right hand column? Am I a peacemaker or am I a potster? And allow the Holy Spirit to to speak to you on that. We're not called to keep peace, people. We're called to make peace. Now, before we close out, I do want to just touch briefly on this persecuted peace briefly. I intentionally didn't spend a lot of time on this particular beatitude. Blessed are the persecuted, uh, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the truth is this. We know nothing about true biblical persecution. You know, just, just being honest, uh, we, we know nothing about it. Some of you are probably like, man, what did Dan eat this morning? He is grouchy. You know, he is, he is out to get us. No, I'm not trying to be grouchy. I'm just, uh, let's just be honest. Can we have an honest conversation here? Most of us don't know, have never tasted true biblical persecution. None of us have endured persecution like the early followers of Jesus had. And look, I'm not trying to minimize your struggles or your hardships that you would identify as persecution. But unless you've had some basic human rights violated because of your faith in Jesus, you haven't experienced true persecution. You might have experienced some hardships and and difficulties, yes. But we can't qualify that as true biblical persecution the way Jesus is talking about it here. But now, with that said, I want to point out one thing about this particular beatitude. Notice the promise after the challenge. In verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This and the poor in spirit beatitude, if you track back all the way to the beginning of the series, the poor in spirit beatitude are the only ones that have present implications in its promises. All the other ones in, the, in, the, in all of the other beatitudes are in the future tense. Blessed are you, and for, for so-and-so, and they shall be. Blessed are you when so-and-so, and you shall be. You will be. They are all in the future tense. This one and the poor in spirit beatitudes are the only ones that are in the present tense. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I also find it interesting that Jesus bookends his beatitudes with this particular promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the way fast forward to the end, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, I wonder if Jesus is trying to tell us something here. I wonder if Jesus has been trying to tell us all along with each one of these beatitudes. Could it be that Jesus has been trying to tell us, church, there is a new and better way to live. Not when you get to heaven, but you can live this new and better way now. You can live this new and better. It is possible to experience the kingdom life, the kingdom way. Now you don't have to wait till you die and you get to heaven. You can taste the goodness of heaven now. And that blessing comes through being poor in spirit. That blessing comes through mourning, through a meek life, through a life that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, after the things of God. That goodness of the kingdom of God, that blessing comes through being merciful people. That blessing comes through growing deeper in purity of heart. That blessing comes through walking as peacemakers and not just peacekeepers. 
That blessing comes through persecution that may come when we follow after his kingdom way. Church, we can experience the kingdom life now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven.